grace and peace are yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. My brothers, my sisters, in Christ. What does a report card have in common with a tombstone? Or your yearly performance evaluation with an obituary? Assessment, evaluation, approval, right? Your report card bears the signs of how you did during that semester or during that year. What you place, what you have placed on your tombstone is what you will be known for after your passing. Performance evaluation is when you get the good news, the bad news of how you've been performing at your job. In obituary, part of it is always to say what kind of person you, will, you were while you were living. Assessment, evaluation, approval, these are things that we are cursed to care about. Even if you are someone who is super secure in your self-esteem, you don't thrive on anyone's approval of you, you don't seek approval from anyone, the world has a way of training you to desire people's approval. From birthday cards to report cards to your credit score, you are being constantly assessed and evaluated and judged and criticized. Even if you are the most secure person in the world, you don't care what anyone thinks of you, what people think of you matters to some extent. And I, I think it's safe to say that a lot of us are not quite that secure. I hope it's not offensive for me to assume that there's not a person in this room that absolutely 100% does not care what anyone in the entire world thinks of you. All of us care what somebody thinks about us, right? In fact, we could go so far as to say that it's part of human nature. It's part of everyone's heart to be a human is to care about what God thinks of you. And whether you know God through his word, through the Bible, that you know the one true God, or you don't, a lot of people, everyone is on a quest to win God's approval. And so somebody could read or hear that lesson from Matthew, and what, what that master said to his servants, which you recognize the master represents God in that parable, sends tickles down our spine, sends a chill through our bodies. Wouldn't we love to hear God say that same thing about us? Well done, good and faithful servant. Now, if you're somebody who's super secure in yourself and you don't, you don't quite care what other people think, maybe you've even drifted a little bit beyond caring what God thinks about you. Jesus says this parable to call you back to put that desire back into your heart, to put that anxiety, to put that worry back in your heart. You should care what God thinks about you. But at the same time, we're speaking to those of us who have all but given up on ourselves, who day after day struggle to find a single likable, worthwhile thing about ourselves, to find a single thing that we can be proud of at all, especially before God. Jesus speaks this parable to you, too. But he gets us back to caring, to thinking, to considering as the most important, what does God say about you? 
And the way that he gets there is by having us envision a rich guy. And we can tell that he's rich because he's got three or more servants in his household. These are people who live with him. And they're obviously not just people who cut his grass and take care of his dogs. No, this is like if you have your accountant living in your house with you. Your CPA has a bedroom on your property. Because this rich guy, he leaves. And his servants are so good, so well-trained, and so trustworthy that he can leave them with his riches. Now, you're probably familiar with old translations of this parable that, that translate that he left them with a bunch of talents. That he gave five talents to one guy, two talents to another guy, and one talent to another guy. Talent is not used here in Jesus' day, talent was a measurement. It wasn't a gift or ability or capacity that people have. It was, a, it was a weight. And so he gave five weighty talents, or bags of gold, to the first one. A lot of money. This was a heavy sum of precious metal, probably in coins. And it's obvious, when he comes back, he expected them to do something with it. The first one got right to it. We are not given the details of what he did. We're just told that he put the money to work. Maybe he used the money as much as it was, probably hundreds of thousands of dollars. He invested in a business venture. Maybe he bought merchandise to go and sell at the marketplace. And it was a successful business. He was given five bags of gold and he gained a profit of five bags of gold. Maybe the second guy, he took his two bags of gold and he bought some rental properties with it. And he rented those out and got a passive income going. Because it was a long time before the rich guy came back. And he gained two more bags of gold. It's the third guy who we get the most detail about. Because his behavior is so strange. He takes the one bag of gold that he gets, still a lot of money. He wraps it up, and he buries it. He doesn't forget it at home and say, oh, yeah, my master wanted me to do something with that. He doesn't take it to the racetracks and bet it all away and lose it on the ponies. He does something that makes no sense. He does the one thing that you can do with money that will guarantee that nobody benefits from it, not even him. He buries it in the ground. This is not something anyone would do with money at all. There's no logical reason for it. Even his reason for it falls short of su sufficiently explaining it. He says, I did it because, because you're a difficult person to deal with, my boss. You're, you're a hard man. You reap where you did not sow. And the, the master points out why that explanation doesn't make any sense. He says, if that were true, why didn't you at least dump the money off at the bank? <laughs> it could earn marginal interest but his actions displayed how he felt about his master the way he treated his master's gifts betrayed the hatred and fear in this servant's heart against his master as often happens in the gospels this parable occurs in a series of parables teaching us about when jesus comes back when the last day comes when judgment day comes jesus is inviting us to consider that moment that he comes back because he's going to have a question for you what did you do 
with what I gave you? Jesus will ask. Husbands, did you treat your wife as a gift or as a burden? Wives, did you love and respect your husbands as a blessing from me, Jesus will say. Parents, what about your kids? Kids, what about your parents? What about your teachers? What about your job? What about your life? Did you treat it as a gift from God to be invested in? Or did you treat it as something that's purely yours and you can bury it in the ground if you want? Because we can't escape the reality that everything that we have has come from God. Everything that you are, every relationship that you have, everything that you own was a gift from God. And that carries the expectation from God that you'll do something with it, that you'll put it to work. And if you don't, well, that reflects the way you feel about God. Now, none of us would raise a fist against God, but we might raise a fist against our wives. None of us would raise our voice at God, but we might raise our voice at our kids. None of us would quiet quit our relationship with God, but you might cheat on your time card. You might duck out of work early. You might go out of your way to waste companies' time to get back at them for your perceived slight against you. Now, none of us would say that we hate God, but sometimes we hate his gifts. And Jesus says, that's the same thing. Maybe you can tell that what exactly we're supposed to interpret the bags of gold as is a little bit ambiguous, is a little bit abstract, because a lot of stuff fits. Anything that God has given to you, entrusted to you, for you to put to work, for you to invest in, that fits the definition of the bags of gold in this parable. But you know what else fits? You do. You are a gift God has given to you. Think about it. You were once dead in your transgressions, and sins. You were once an enemy, hostile to God. You wanted nothing to do with him. You were once on a one-way track, straight to weeping and gnashing of teeth. And how did that change? God intervened. God sent Jesus Christ to be the atoning sacrifice for your sin, to take your guilt and your wickedness and your hostility and crucify it on his cross. God sent you Jesus Christ to, to be your righteousness, to be your obedience in your place. So that when you came to him, when God drew you into his family, he robed you with Christ's purity. He robed you with Christ's righteousness. Brothers and sisters, you do not need to wait to hear from God, well done, good and faithful servant. He's saying that about you already. Because when he looks at you, he doesn't see you for your sin. He sees you for Jesus' sake. When he looks at you, he doesn't see all the ways that you fail because those are covered with the righteousness of Christ. He sees Jesus. And so when God looks at you, his face shines 
upon you. He is grinning from ear to ear. He's nudging his angels up in heaven saying, look, that's my child. Look at what they're doing for me. He doesn't see your flaws. He sees you for Jesus' sake. What gift from God compares to the gift of your own self? What has God given you that trumps the fact that he has given you a new you, a new identity? That's what we want to put to work, as Paul says, to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. We want to share our master's happiness. Now, the New Testament says that when you came to God's family, when God drew you in through your baptism, through your conversion, all the angels in heaven rejoiced. You brought great joy to God's heart when you became a part of his family. That's your master's joy. He feels it now for you, for Jesus' sake. Share that. Because when you put your master's joy, when you put that love, that grace of God to work and share it with others, you're investing it. You're multiplying it as more and more people see the gospel. But you know what that kind of sounds like? That kind of sounds like a multi-level marketing scheme. Have you heard of this? A multi-level marketing business doesn't hire employees, they get people to sign on to use their products and sell it for them to their friends and family. I'm not going to name any examples of multi-level marketing businesses, but I suspect you're getting what I'm saying. You don't get a salary when you work for these companies. You get commissions if you can get your friends and family to buy onto it too. And now there are some businesses that work this way that are perfectly legitimate. Their products are good, but there are a lot that are bad. The products are cheaply made, overpriced, they overpromise, they underdeliver. And so the whole business model relies on people lying to their friends and family saying, you got to come and buy this product, whatever it is. And so they do the hard work for the business for them. Is that what God wants us to do? To market him to people to overpromise and underdeliver? I don't think so. But what's the difference between a multi-level marketing scheme and a legitimate business? When you encounter a legitimate business, you don't need to be told to share their product. If their product really is good, if it's really worth your time, if it's really good for you, if it really delivers, you don't need to be told to tell other people about it. Whether we're talking about a chicken sandwich or a phone carrier or a clothing line, if you are satisfied, if you enjoy the product, you don't need to be told to tell other people about it. You want to share the goodness of what it is. Everyone is looking for approval. Everyone needs to know that they matter. Everyone is looking for someone to look down on them and smile instead of scowl. Everyone wants to hear from God that they are worthy, that they've done well, and you know where that comes from. That comes from Jesus. You've experienced it yourself through the gospel. You're going to experience it again as confirmed members of Trinity have communion together. So that's what we share. 
But we need to make one thing absolutely clear. You don't share your father's happiness with others so that he can approve of you. You don't share your father's happiness with others so that you can find worth in his sight. You already have it in Jesus. That is not what's on the line. You have already been saved from the weeping and the gnashing of teeth by the blood of Christ. But what we consider now, knowing that our Savior is going to come back, and knowing that we're going to have this conversation with him, what is he going to say? What is he going to point out that you did for him? It might sound something like, well done, good and faithful servant. I gave you a spouse and you loved them unconditionally, even when times were hard. Come, share your master's happiness. Or it might sound like, well done, good and faithful servant. I gave you a job, and you worked it with all your heart as if I were your immediate supervisor and not a human being. Come, share your father's happiness. Or it might sound like, well done, good and faithful servant. I gave you my truth. I gave you my word. And you treated it as the most important thing, even over and above the way you felt at the moment. When you needed to defend it, you defended it. When you needed to share it, you shared it. When you needed to just enjoy it, you enjoyed it. Come share in your master's happiness. Brothers and sisters, we don't share as if anything is on the line. That good report, that approval, that positive evaluation from God is already guaranteed for you in Christ. What we consider right now is what are you doing? What are you going to do? What kind of service, kind of sharing is Jesus going to highlight on that day as what you did for his name? We know he's coming. So we get busy now sharing our master's happiness. Amen.